the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. They thought they had him trapped. The crowd is looking on, wondering what is going to happen next. What happened? Jesus did something that was totally unexpected. He stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Question. What did he write? Answer. We don't know. No, we don't know, but the crowd certainly did, and they reacted almost instantly, and we'll hear a lot more about that. There's a lot of controversy over this story, and Pastor Leighton Sheely is going to really dig into it for us on today's edition of Study Verse by Verse. I think you'll find this particular broadcast fascinating. This is an outreach ministry of Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. I'm Mike Trout. And Pastor Layton is going to begin a new message today and wrap up the last few verses of chapter 7 of the book of John. In fact, if you have a modern translation, you may have a footnote in there about this particular passage not appearing in early manuscripts. And I think it's important for us to spend a few minutes of understanding and appreciating the significance of this footnote uh, for a number of reasons. Critics will use this footnote uh, to fuel their agenda. And I think it's important for us as believers to be equipped. This passage is perhaps one of the most familiar and popular stories about Jesus. And there is a chance, there's a possibility that it was not originally in John's gospel or in John's gospel at this location. Let me explain. The, the critics uh, use two standards or forms of of uh, authenticating. Uh, one is internal evidence, one is external evidence. Now remember that the scriptures were written before the era of photocopiers and scanners, and all of the documents were meticulously hand-copied by trained scribes on materials such as animal skins and papyrus that had a limited lifespan. And these copyists took extreme care to make sure that they were copying accurately and precisely. In fact, it was often the practice that if there was even one error in a copy, that the copy was burned so that it would not accidentally enter circulation and, uh, and be imprecise. In fact, the degree to which these wonderful monks, scribes, uh, and copyists went to make sure that the Word of God was preserved is underscored for us with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The earliest manuscript that we have of Isaiah dates back to about 900 to 1000 AD, about 1000 years old. But between 1947 and 1956, there was a discovery made we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were scrolls that were written around the time of Christ. Uh, They were buried around 70 AD. They had been undisturbed for 2,000 years. And because of the dry environment of the Dead Sea, they had been protected for 2,000 years. And there's studies going on uh, today about these incredible Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, what the scholars did is the Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way, contain all of the Old Testament except the book of Esther. And what the scholars did is they opened up 
the uh, Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scroll collection, and they compared it to the earliest uh, manuscripts that we had of Isaiah previous to the discovery, which was around 900 to 1000 A.D. And they found that there was only 13 textual variations in that copy, and none of those textual variations was major, and none affected the accuracy of communicating the original intent. They were all minor variations. That's generations of writing over a thousand years and only 13 minor variations in that amount of time. That underscores the remarkable accuracy that we enjoy when we read our scriptures today, that such attention has been given to this detail. Now, in the critic's mind, the older the manuscript is, the more valuable it is because it's closer to the original. And the oldest manuscripts that we have are called the Uncial manuscripts because they're all written in capital letters. And they all date from uh, the 4th to the 6th centuries. Now, this is the situation. Out of all of those earliest manuscripts, this story occurs in only one of them. There are six that omit it entirely. And there are two that leave a blank space where this portion should be. Now, the early church fathers certainly knew of this story and this event. Jerome included it in his Latin translation of the Vulgate. Augustine and Ambrose, also 4th century church fathers, also mention it and comment on it as well. In fact, we can trace it back even farther than that because a 3rd century book entitled The Apostolic Constitutions, this story is included as a warning against leaders, church leaders that were too strict. And then Eusebius, the 3rd century church historian, uh, quotes Papias, who was a first century uh, person, uh, as, uh, as, as saying this, this story. Now, Papias was a student of John the Apostle. So we, can, we don't have to be afraid that this is not an authentic story. We can trace it all the way back to about 100 A.D., which is only about 10 to 20 years later than the Gospel of John was written. Beyond doubt, this is an authentic, actual historical event that took place in the life of Jesus. There's nothing in this that contradicts, and we're talking about internal evidence now, nothing that contradicts anything else in the New Testament. He is portrayed as a wise and loving and forgiving Savior. And this is not a story that would likely be written by the early church monks and scribes because it's a picture that seems to only give a mild rebuke on the sin of adultery, and that was not the nature of the early church monks. So then that begs the question as to why this story might have been removed from the early circulation copies. And Augustine gives us a hint. He said that this text was removed because some were of slight faith or weak faith and to avoid scandal. And so evidently it was the concern of some who copied the text. They thought this story was dangerous because it could be used or misused as a justification for adultery. And so they chose to omit it. Remember the early church was a small island in the midst of a huge sea of hedonistic paganism. The the letter that was written to the church at Corinth by Paul, uh, that city was a city of maybe 500,000 people. And the church that he wrote to was 50 to 100 people. 
And they'd come out of this lifestyle, and they were surrounded by this pagan, hedonistic lifestyle. In fact, the reputation of Corinth was known throughout the Roman Empire. And so there was a concern that these early Christians might be dragged back into their hedonistic, pagan lifestyle. And so some chose to not include it in the copies that were being explained. And that might explain why there's a gap in some of the manuscripts where this story should be. Now, later on, people in the, in, that were doing the scribe, scribal work, the copy work, realized that they did, they did not have the authority to edit God's Word. Now, think about that. You know, God's Word should not be edited. God's Word is God's Word. It's exactly what God wants us to know. Now, this story is not only the story of an adulteress who was caught in the very act and hypocritical religious leaders, but really the central figure of this story is the Lord Jesus Christ who is portrayed here and reveals his humility, his wisdom, uh, his justice, and yet his mercy and forgiveness. Now, let's begin our study. It's actually verse 53 of the previous chapter. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, which is next to Jerusalem. Early in the morning he came down again to the temple. All of the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Now, if this passage is indeed following the previous chapter, chapter 7, which we looked at when we last got together, then you remember how that chapter concluded. The religious leaders who were the keepers of the law uh, were were confronted by Nicodemus, who asked the question, should you make a decision or a judgment when you haven't even heard what Jesus has to say? You haven't done due process. In other words, the keepers of the law were not keeping the law. And uh, evidently, that question then may have uh, stopped the momentum that was behind this building agenda to arrest Jesus. And what people realized is, is they, they weren't going to succeed and they, everybody went to their own home. Now, that agenda did not altogether disappear because six months later, when Jesus was back in Jerusalem for the Passover, he was arrested and crucified, as the scriptures tell us. Now, Jesus, it says here that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is right next to the uh, old city of Jerusalem, just a few hundred yards away. And it's interesting that the implication here is that he didn't have any place to go, that the creator of the universe didn't have a home to go to, and so he went to the Mount of Olives. It's incredible when we think about what Jesus Christ has done out of his love for us and to save us. I mean, he was in the throne room of heaven. Now, we cannot even imagine what the throne room of heaven must be like. It's better than any throne room on earth. I think we can all agree that that's it. We don't have any idea. And he left the throne room of heaven and came to earth, and he could have chosen to be born into a wealthy household or a powerful household. And where did he choose to be born? Into a household of common people, of peasants, because he was bringing salvation to the common people, to everyone. Jesus said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then early the next morning, he comes back to the temple to teach, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down, which was the standard uh, style of of a rabbi, and he began to teach, and the people came to hear what he had to say. And throughout his ministry, Jesus exhibited this humility. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that when he comes back, it's not going to be in humility. It's going to be with power and great glory when he comes back. 
Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Wouldn't you like to have been there? Hmm, maybe not. (laughs) It might have gotten way too personal. You're listening to another edition of Study Verse by Verse, an outreach from Church of the Highlands in San Bruno with uh, teacher pastor Leighton Sheely. He's the senior minister at uh, Church of the Highlands. And details about the church are always available on the web. I tell you this almost every broadcast so that the outreach of this broadcast can be completed, come full circle by encouraging you to either get further involved in your own church or look into joining the congregation, the worshipers, at Church of the Highlands. The website is highlands.us. That's highlands.us. There are a lot of exciting things going on at the church, and I encourage you to check them out. We'll be back tomorrow at this same time to continue this look at the book of John, the 8th chapter. And I hope you can join us when we'll open the Word of God and study verse by verse.